The Church. Few institutions are more unpopular or controversial these days than the Christian Church. And let's face it, a lot of the time, even Christians don't appear to like it very much. Every week, it seems, there's a new scandal or debate splitting congregations. And it can be tempting to think that maybe the church is obsolete. Maybe we'd be better off going our own way. But there's a tragic irony in that. Sometimes it's lost on us that in the Gospel of Matthew, when Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church, he's not talking to the flawless, rich, young ruler types or even the Pharisees. He's talking about the disciples, but especially Peter, the one who would later deny Christ, who needed to be confronted by the Apostle Paul, and who often had to have things repeated three times before he understood it. The point is, from the very beginning, Jesus knew that his church would be filled with the messy, sinful men and women that he gave his life to save. And so he gave his apostles specific guidance on how the church should help Christians grow in faith in repentance, doctrine and ethics through preaching, sacraments, and prayer. The liberals of Machen's day didn't believe this was enough. They began to look for ways to accommodate Jesus' vision to the culture at the expense of our core beliefs about Christ, the Bible, salvation, God, and even our own identity. We find ourselves at a similar crossroads today surrounded by a culture asking the question, does the church even matter? Politics, technology, identity, power, science, everything seems to be changing. So why not faith? This is Christianity and Liberalism, a podcast based on the book by Jay Gresham Machen. In this show, we'll be discussing the modern-day church in crisis and engaging with Machen's classic text to see what lessons we can learn and apply 100 years later. The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's manned Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis, the lamb's dripping wrist This is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is gone and he's manned Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL, with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell In his book, Christianity and Liberalism, J. Gresson Machen saved the best for last. Chapter 7 on the church is an incredible statement of the beauty and value of Christ's church for the world in his day and ours. In the 1920s, liberal Christians had an ambitious plan to save Christianity from irrelevance, or so they claimed. But Machen and others like him weren't just skeptical, they were outraged. While technological and societal change had increased dramatically, people were still sinners that needed saving. Should the faith handed down for centuries have to change? Because of the Enlightenment? Because of Darwin? We're in a similar place in 2023. Our world has changed once again, and everywhere we turn, there are influential voices calling into question the basic tenets of Christ's church. 
To learn more about the challenges facing the church today, I spoke with my friend, Dr. Eric Watkins. Eric is pastor of Harvest Orthodox Presbyterian Church in San Marcos, California, and instructor in ministerial studies at Mid-America Reform Seminary. He's the author of the drama of preaching and speaks and writes around the country on the topic of social justice and critical race theory. We started our conversation where we've begun most of our episodes with where Eric first learned about Christianity and liberalism. My first introduction to Machen's Christianity and liberalism was uh, likely when I was a seminary student at Westminster Seminary in California where Machen and his work are in, in many ways celebrated and, and widely recognized. I, I think the deeper dive came for me <clears throat> when taking the OPC church history class as a part of the MTI OPC uh, course with uh, John Meather. That was just a, a, a really helpful uh, class. And it's interesting to me, this is a book that I've pulled off the shelf many times. I taught it at Covenant OPC in St. Augustine, Florida, uh, through Sunday school uh, a number of years ago, and then even recently taught it for a men's study at Harvest OPC in San Marcos, where I'm serving now. Uh, this is, as many know, the centennial year, 100th anniversary of the book, uh, written in 1923, and so it was a, a nice time to come back to it. And it, it's it's one of those books kind of like Pilgrim's Progress that arguably a Christian could or should read every year, and maybe that's a little overstated, but in my mind, every time I come back to it, I'm just surprised how timely, if not prescient, the book seems in the sense of anticipating so many of the questions of today, although it was written 100 years ago, but not just anticipating them, but offering healthy, sound, reformed answers to the challenges of the day as well. This is a theme we keep returning to on our show, how Machen's thesis in Christianity and liberalism seems to anticipate trends that would emerge and clarify decades after his book was published. Since Eric studied postmodernism in his doctoral work, I asked him how Machen's book spoke to that worldview just downstream from the modernism of Machen's era. I think there are a couple levels at which Machen anticipated something like postmodernism. The first is to say that, at least in my understanding, in many ways, postmodernism, which all by itself is a term that people would nuance or or question, um, some would call it a form of modernism on steroids in the sense that a lot of the things that are, a lot of things are stated in postmodernism still draw from a modern worldview, a a modern uh, philosophy in um, just a number of ways. And so, on the one hand, <clears throat> yes, Machen did not live to see the advent of what is referred to as postmodernism, but he was he was interacting with the foundational thoughts and structures that undergird postmodernism in a lot of ways. And there, there are a couple that come out to me. Um, one is the idea of intellectual honesty, which is something that I, I think we'll talk a little bit more about. Uh, but Machen wanted w- words to mean what they mean and for people to have integrity behind those words and, and the way that people would talk about theology. So he would he would resist 
the sort of jellyfish-like dynamic um, of liberalism that would, on the one hand, call itself one thing while uh, actually, in reality, meaning something else. And, and that sort of elasticity of definition is something that I think he interestingly anticipated as a what would become a feature in postmodernism where things don't don't even want to be defined. They want to be described because there's more vagary and flexibility in description than there is in uh, definition. I think other places where Machen would anticipate uh, postmodernism would get into issues of authority and the use of history. Um, <clears throat> you know, his sensitivity, particularly to the use of history and how it serves to guide us would, I, in my mind, prove to be a helpful way of sort of anticipating some of the conundrums that postmodernism finds itself in. Um, Machen was also a really helpful exegete at a lot of ways, and he took the Bible for what it is rather than trying to bend it into something that it isn't. And that also, I think, is a feature of his work that anticipates some of the problems of postmodernism that tends to make literature mean whatever mm -hmm. uh, the reader wants it to mean and the idea of authorial intent and authority disappear. Uh, so Machen serves to help us uh, stand against the tide of those ideas. This tide of progressivism has been seeping into the church for years by the time Machen wrote his book. And it was clear from the beginning that liberal theology and the traditional church could not coexist. But instead of throwing up his arms in despair, Machen appealed to the liberals to preserve the unity of the church by withdrawing. And he began his argument in his chapter on the church by appealing to the biblical notion of brotherhood. Very popular in Machen's day was the language of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And you have to remember, <clears throat> you know, Machen's book, written in 1923, is written in a climate that is highly charged and sensitized to realities, harsh realities of things like World War I, which Machen had seen, and in the shadow of that strong desire to find ways for people to get along rather than fight. And so whatever would erase the lines that divide in a certain sense was sort of the imperative of the day. And that was felt in society in general, but it was also felt in the church in a way that probably nudged or fanned the flame of liberal theology, you know, people looking for whatever they could to drop or blur distinctions that became lines of division. And so Machen's plea for, for honesty from the perspective of brotherhood is on the one hand, uh, recognizing that the church is distinct from the world and that its bond is far greater than simply that of being created um, by God. You know, the, the fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man movement looking for that common denominator says, well, effectively, since we're all created by the same God, that means God is everyone's father, and therefore we are all brothers with one another. And, and it sounds great, and it would make for a nice little, you know, <clears throat> Christmas song around a tree holding a Coke, for those of you that are old enough to remember uh, that commercial. But what Machen recognized in that uh, was a very, very dangerous trajectory that in eclipsing the distinctions that separated the church from the world, the church would lose its identity and be swallowed up 
by the world. And so the the polite, politically correct mantras of fatherhood of God, brotherhood of man, uh, Machen saw as a real deep and meaningful threat that in, in the end, ironically, would, uh, would enable people who were opposed to Machen and the truth for which he stood, people that in some ways claimed to be Machen's friends would, would end up in many ways stabbing him in the back. So the things that he stood for, uh, in many ways he suffered and bled for, that this was not an incidental point of theology for Machen. It was at the core of the gospel and at the core of the church. Hmm. Yeah, Machen says that the modern liberal doctrine is that all men everywhere, no matter what their race or creed, are brothers. Why do you think it's significant that he mentions creed? I'm not sure where this little cliche came into existence, no creed but Christ. But one of the things that certainly becomes an issue even in this chapter on the church from Machen's point of view is the importance of having creeds that actually stand out and articulate truth. Uh, but if people in that time were 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 fishing strongly for reasons uh, or or ways to obliterate distinctions, uh, well, it's you know clearly the case in in history that religious creeds alongside race have been points of division, and and could even be seen in some ways as the backdrop for wars between nations and uh, things to that effect. So I, I think. What Machen is doing there, or his concern is going to be recognizing the importance of creedal confession, creedal and confessional theology, and standing for those things, because with, without them, uh, it, you end up having like a yard without a fence. And while on the one hand, fences uh, may not be attractive or preferred, they're really helpful, and they enable children people to know where it's safe, where it is not safe, and, and that safety is important in the life of the church. Without that fence, without those creedal fences around the church, uh, there's no easy way to distinguish truth from error. Mm. So in Machen's day, theological liberals did have that humanist perspective uh, and even a, a humanitarian agenda uh, for the church specifically. Machen's rejoinder to that was, uh, quote, the church is the highest Christian answer to the social needs of man, end quote. Can you, can you help us explain uh, to someone in our day who wants to see the church support a specific cultural agenda, either on the left or right, what Machen's vision for the church is in this chapter? Yeah, such a great question, and it's really intriguing for those who take the time to actually read the chapter. The last four pages, <clears throat> it's almost like Machen saw not only liberalism and postmodernism coming, but, but uh, social justice as well. And so when he says the church is the highest Christian answer to the social needs of man, he, he even, even gives illustrations there that sort of unpack that in ways that might, might even surprise a lot of readers. I, I think Machen would you know would affirm the idea that like the church should be the safest place in the world for the oppressed for the victimized for the abused uh for the outcast and that the church should be that god-given um agency and organism in the world that sort of rises above secular attempts at addressing earthly problems because the church is the only organization in the world that addresses those problems with the gospel 
So Machen wasn't against like meeting social needs. I, I don't think he was at all. In fact, I think that he even argues at the end of his book in this climactic chapter on the church, I think he actually argues uh, that the church should indeed have uh, ministries that are outward facing. You could call them diaconal that would step across the pain line and engage the brokenness of the world. So, you know, it's not overly surprising that he would have served in something like the Salvation Army during World War I, which would be an analog to what we're talking about, uh, providing a form of relief from a Christian point of view. And if you read Machen's uh, letters and, and, and sermons, you get a sense of where his heart was at for things to that extent. Uh, uh, you know, things to that extent. Uh, but I, I do think Machen sees the church as standing for truth, but also practicing and embodying the truth in ways that would address the needs of the day. And so for those that love the orthodoxy of Machen as they should, they should also appreciate uh, the orthopraxy that he argues for in his chapter on the church. Orthopraxy, or the practice of living a godly life, would be a critical element of the integrity of Machen's defense of orthodoxy. Although it cuts against a lot of the caricatures of Machen as an ivory tower theologian, he insisted on the church's involvement in missions and evangelism. Machen had a big heart for the lost. I think you could say, arguably, you know, his... His love primarily was for the church and the God of the church, but he had arguably a real a real heart for the lost. If you read his sermons, God Transcendent, and other sermons, he has several sermons that are not only uh, striking in their passion for the lost, but but very motivating. Uh, the way that he would speak. Uh, to the church about the need to seek and to save the lost, uh, thinking of you know Gerhardus Voss's sermon in Grace and Glory, seeking and saving the lost, an absolutely wonderful sermon. You know that that sort of evangelistic honey drips down into the heart and soul of Machen, and Machen wanted to see the church do things that would engage uh, the sort of common ground brokenness of the world around him, but he wanted to see those things always as a means to an end, and the proper end was an evangelistic one that would bring the gospel to those who are outside the church. Frankly, uh, as one that has uh, something of a zeal, I hope, for evangelism, this is actually one of the things that attracts me and has attracted me to the OPC, and not that I mean by that any form of denominational snobbery, but if you get to know Machen, uh, he really had a heart for the lost evangelistically in ways that make him not simply a resistor of liberalism, but an advocate of the church fulfilling its responsibility to the Great Commission. Hmm. Now, you just put in the same sentence, OPC and evangelism. Most people wouldn't put those together. But what we find in Machen is a heavy emphasis on reaching the lost. And that just reminds me of an interesting discovery I made in the basement at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. When Machen was a student, he spoke or preached in chapel on a day when Voss was present. And he made the comment that the most important thing that the church does is evangelism. And, and that's in the text of his sermon. And then in different colored ink on the side, it said, Dr. Voss disagreed with me. 
and argued that worship is the most important thing that the church does. And I think that is right and really helpful in a number of ways. The, the most important thing the church does is worship because worship is eschatological. In heaven, we will worship with the evangelized. In this present evil age, we evangelize those that don't yet worship. Hmm. So we we worship on the Lord's Day already, and we will worship in heaven uh, forever, but that day is not yet. And so worship really is uh, the, the top of everything that the church does. But, but if I can say it playfully, uh, if worship is the most important thing, number one, uh, number two is still pretty important. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where Machen would place the Great Commission and the church carrying out its goal of seeking and saving the lost— and that, that has really been helpful for me as a pastor, um, on the one hand, recognizing that, uh, that in a certain sense, the, the willingness, the temptation to sacrifice the theological identity of the church on the altar of church growth, to sacrifice right worship for evangelistic growth is wrong, unbiblical, unhealthy. Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, while having a rightly ordered church and worship service, um, in a certain sense, were not rightly ordered and healthy, even reformed, if we were not self-consciously and heartily evangelistically engaged. And I think that's not just true drawing from Machen. Um, if you look at the Reformed Confessions uh, from Westminster Standards to Three Forms, they say a lot about evangelism and have that have a passion for evangelism in ways that uh, I just wish I would hear more from Reformed people. Um, evangelism is not foreign to the Reformed standards. Uh, they're, they're just bound to them. Uh, the same thing is true of, of John Calvin. There's a John Calvin most people don't know, and it's the evangelistic side of John Calvin who I would argue in a lot of ways, uh, Calvin was a remarkable evangelist. He didn't just train other people to do it, at his ministerial company in Geneva, he did it himself in Geneva in remarkable ways. And that uh, form of Calvin and Calvinism drips down into the reform standards and it drips down into into Machen. It, it came into Voss and others so that the Machen that I know and love is not only one who's a defender of orthodoxy, uh, he's one who really has a heart for the lost. Mm-hmm. It was Machen's heart to see sinners saved from a dark and doomed world that motivated him to take a trenchant stand for Orthodox Christianity. But as we see time and again in Christianity and liberalism, it wasn't the threat outside the church that concerned him most. Machen's real concern for the church was not so much the threat that could come from the outside. He, he has a line in one of his sermons in God Transcendent where he says the, the real attack is not going to come with swords and clubs. It's, it's not unbelievers threatening and persecuting the church that Machen was really worried about, but, but rather um, decay from within and perhaps uh, the real concern that the idols of comfort and ease would cause the church, and I'm quoting him here, to slowly and gradually merge with the world. That's what kept Machen awake at night. That was Machen's real fear, that the church would slowly and gradually merge with the world. So that when when Machen looks at the things that are threatening the church in his day, he just came back from war. He wasn't afraid of guns and arrows. That, 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 that I don't think was what he was so much worried about, but that the church would lose its identity 
uh, because of the tensions that existed at that time in the world. If Machen rightly saw in his day the church being tempted by the idols of comfort and ease, um, I think that's a really helpful way of thinking about our current context where, you know, the American church, for instance, at times can be more American than church. Mm-hmm. And it's in its own flirtation with the idols of comfort and ease, its own craving for success and popularity could cause it to lower its guard, to compromise its creedal standards, to eclipse its uh, its role as salt and light in the world in a way uh, that causes the church to become more and more indistinguishable from worldly institutions or sub-Christian institutions. I think that threat is alive and well today. Uh, you see it in, in movements. I won't name Particulars, but I think you see it in in movements uh, that are on the one hand just you know to say it plainly, hopefully not too crassly, but just trying too hard to make the gospel look sexy, trying to trying too hard to make the church on Sunday morning look a lot an awful lot like Saturday night, uh, caving into social justice and social pressures in ways that betray biblical orthodoxy. And so on the one hand, the challenges are new, but the but the temptation to those idols of comfort and ease, uh, those have always been there. Hmm. Although we strive for unity in the church, as Machen points out, nothing engenders strife so much as a forced unity within the same organization of those who disagree fundamentally in aim. What does true unity or communion in the body of Christ look like? A great question. Unity is never at the expense of truth, but always in the context of truth. And part of the dilemma in Machen's day is that you had, uh, for the sake of unity, a willingness to compromise truth. Uh, Machen's greatest advocate, arguably, was Pearl Buck, um, you know, wonderful novelist and you know quasi missionary, um, known for her writings. She's a fantastic writer and a flaming liberal. And, and would argue uh, almost against proclaiming the gospel on the mission field in ways that so baffled Machem, you know, they, they could not have unity, that they fundamentally disagreed on only the doctrine of the church, but the mission and aim of the church. And so it's, it's arguable that Machem, you know, has tensions like that in mind, where if we are willing to sacrifice truth, on the altar of unity, at the end of the day, we'll end up with neither truth nor unity. Yeah, yeah. My thoughts go to the Lord's Supper and just thinking about the language that um, many ministers, including myself, will use when they fence the table prior to the elements uh, being served and the importance of when making a profession of faith in this or another faithful church. And that when we when we start to define what faithful churches are, that's that's not a definition based upon feeling or experience, but upon um, creedal alignment and fidelity. Um, so where we have that uh, where we have that alliance based upon truth, based upon creedal orthodoxy, based upon the Word of God, that's when we have true communion. And when we don't have uh, that sort of alignment with one another based on truth, based on creedal orthodoxy, based on the Bible, we don't have true communion. So when people just happen to wander into our church, which happily I can say people 
from outside the church do all the time, uh, it's actually quite fitting for them not to partake of the Lord's Supper until they make a profession of faith because the church is not a club. You can't buy your way into it. It has you know, no bearing. Um, it doesn't draw from your social status, so to speak. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's a bond forged by our union with Christ. And where we have true union with Christ and can recognize uh, even um, faithful churches, uh, that's where we get true communion. It, it does remind me of one thing. Uh, this could be a little controversial, but if, if I have it right, there's a distinction that's noteworthy between the Westminster Standards and the three forms on the doctrine of the church. The latter of the three forms uh, recognize true and false churches, so it's binary. And the Westminster Standards recognize true, less true, and false. And that middle category is pretty helpful for me. Like I'm Presbyterian, uh, and I have many Baptist friends, but we have true communion, and I can look at them, you know, as a true church that you know maybe are, you know, less true in my view because we disagree on this particular point in the sacrament. But they're not a false church, right? You know, th- there are false churches out there, and it, it's really helpful that we recognize. I think not just the distinction between true and false churches but even true and less true, so that we can, on the one hand, not be tempted to compromise too much, but also not be guilty of a form of isolationism that says, like, our denomination and we alone are the true church. Yeah. Like, that that makes me nervous almost as equally as the willingness to compromise uh, truth for the sake of inclusiveness. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to remember that we can have theological idols of the heart where we make certain doctrines essential that don't need to be essential, that could be kept secondary to maintain unity. But how do we know when to stop striving for unity and when to ask even people leave, like yourself as a pastor, uh, and as Machen argues in this book, or or to even leave ourselves if we're at a church that seems like there's a, a, a liberal push, when do we know, how do we know when to stop striving for that unity and communion in the body. In Machen's day, one of the issues that he describes is that of people having cross fingers where they, like, for instance, ruling elders would take vows saying that they uphold the Westminster standards when in reality they did not. You know, that that sort of um, disingenuineness is what really plagued Machen, and it's the sort of uh, thing that he's arguing against when he pleads for brotherliness and when he pleads for honesty is that men would not take vows uh, with cross fingers behind their backs. Uh, in, in our day, I think it's gotten really tricky because more and more, even Reformed churches, if you go to their websites, they do a pretty good job of hiding their Reformed identity. And if you look at their liturgy, their sanctuary, their narthex little room out front between uh, where we worship and where we park our cars, that little room in the middle, uh, can often um, do a really good job at hiding anything that would signal this is a Reformed and confessional church and almost trying to look too much like the Calvary Chapel down the street. And I think that's too bad. Like, I I don't understand why we would be ashamed of this and pretend that uh, the little things that signal our Reformed identity would somehow be stumbling blocks. Uh, what you win people with, you win people to. Hmm. And I think that, you know, after 22 years of pastoring, that just really proves to be the case. You're not going to pull a bait and switch at somebody with someone in the sense of 
trying to win them into the church by not being reformed and then you know, hope that someday they'll become really reformed down the trail. Uh, we should lead with who we are and not be ashamed of our reformed identity in our liturgy, in our literature, and in our life. Why are some churches and even pastors embarrassed by their confessional identity? Yeah, and maybe the word embarrass is too strong. I think it, it comes down to the way people have either fallen in love with or really run from what was dubbed the church growth movement, uh, 70s, 80s, um, and the extent to which they're willing to sacrifice the theological visible identity of the church upon the upon the altar of numeric church growth. Mm. So, you know, it, it's not narrowly, I think, fair to say that they're embarrassed. That's, that's my word. Maybe I should apologize for introducing that to the conversation. I, I think it's just a desire to win people uh, to the church or to uh, the gospel, even a desire to keep young people that's so strong that it's it's willing to eclipse reform distinctives in order to do it. So they look at other churches that seem to be numerically larger or whatever and are willing to imitate everything they possibly can, uh, which has the unintended consequence, if not intended consequence, of slowly shrinking our Reformed identities smaller and smaller and smaller. And it's interesting, if not disconcerting, that if you watch this narrative, like within the generational line even of a particular family, you get a couple of generations down the trail, and it's quite rare uh, that the grandkids want to be reformed, so to speak. In other words, it's it's the strained relationship between church and youth ministry, mm. where ironically, in the name of ministering to our kids, and I'm not anti-youth ministry, but you'll appreciate the point I'm trying to make, I hope, uh, then the desire to try to reach our kids with a version of ministry that is flexible and aesthetically distinguishable from what we do on Sunday mornings, uh, when those kids go to college, they end up looking for churches that look more like their youth group than like their church. Mm -hmm. So if you just walk that down a generation or three, uh, the original church largely disappears and the grandkids are likely membering at churches that are less reformed than the parents or the grandparents would have recognized. So, so we're losing some of our generational continuity on the altar of trying to grow. So if even things like worship style and the nature of youth ministry can have far-reaching implications over the course of generations, that means the responsibilities of the pastors and teachers in the church should not be taken lightly. But in Machen's day, there were concerning signs that not everyone entering the ministry had the integrity that their congregations expected of them. It's always hard to understand the heart of another person. I, I struggle even to understand my own heart pretty well. I know in Machen's day, one of the dynamics that he was witnessing uh, was a, a lowering of the bar for, for ordained officers in the church, which he thought was going to lead to catastrophe. On the other hand, he believed, and I think rightly so, that the doors of the local church should not be narrower than the doors of heaven. So you don't have to subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith to be a member in the church, but you do need to subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith to be an elder or a minister in 
a Presbyterian denomination. So he, he wanted to protect, I think, both of those doors and to recognize that as members, you know, a, a credible profession of faith is the entrance bar, uh, entrance requirement into a local church. But for officers, that there should be a higher bar and that bar should not be lowered. So in this chapter, he pokes at that and is just pleading, you know, not just for integrity in the sense of people taking vows that they actually meant, but not lowering the bar itself. Machen knew that this call for integrity wouldn't win him any popularity contests. Even on our best days, it's hard to accept accountability for our words and actions. But Machen knew that integrity was critical to the message of salvation, even if it meant the church was unpopular. After all, if the preacher didn't believe what he was saying, who would? I think Machen had a view of the cross that just knew that the cross was unpopular. And if what the church wanted was to be popular and influential, like if that was the end goal, Machen, I think, understood that's just not going to work. You're going to have one or the other. You can have faithfulness to the cross or you can be popular in the world's eyes, but you can't expect to have both. It's you know, just the opposite of what Jesus taught. And so to the extent, I mean, Machen was high society. He was connected to presidents and people of influence and privilege and stature, all those things that were also, um, you know, on the one hand in the church, but kind of leaning over the liberal uh, fence here. And I think what Machen is recognizing is if the church stood for truth in a world that was pleading for compromise, that the church could see numeric loss. Right now, I, I want to be a little careful with that because I don't want to say that Machen <clears throat> was sort of a you know numeric pessimist and had an overdone martyr complex either, uh, but in a in a Christian culture that uh, was more cultural than Christian, uh, Machen was trying to do a bit of house cleaning, and I think in our day, you know that's you know. Maybe we're in a slightly different context depending on where we are geographically. I've, I've grown to appreciate it. I left the South to come to Southern California. There's no cultural Christianity here in Southern California the way that there was in the South where I pastored for 21 years. Uh, but in Machen's day, you certainly had a cultural Christianity that was no true Christianity at all. And if the church was willing to make clear, divisive stands, draw clear lines for truth, then he knew that that would come with consequence, which you've seen uh, play out in several major denominations that have been in one form or another affected by the schism between orthodoxy and heterodoxy that led to the orthodox uh, often walking away somewhat humbled, but clinging to their Bibles and the gospel. As we talk about division in the church, it's worth considering what has caused some to separate from Machen. When he was still a student at Princeton, Machen wrote a letter to his mother in which he complained about his mentor B.B. Warfield's efforts to desegregate student facilities, allowing an African-American student to room in the dorms for the first time. Understandably, for many readers, this kind of sentiment stands in stark contrast with Machen's inspiring call to unity in Christ's body at the very conclusion of this book. 
I asked Eric how we as Christians should read authors like Machen who've expressed racial prejudice. Well, that sure is a tough question, but it's one that we need to talk about, and maybe my answer will be helpful, maybe it won't. So I'm going to take it at uh, two levels. The first is to say I definitely don't want to um, whitewash, pardon the pun, Machen's sin here. I mean, in reality, uh, Machen, like many Christians, like many theologians of the past, uh, it does not enter heaven unblemished. And in a time in history that is so sensitized to things racial, it's sad for me. I'm a biracial guy with biracial kids, and it you know it's sad for me uh, to know of things like this here in Machen, other places where he says things that you know are, are also uncharitable towards people of color. Um, and so I don't want to dismiss that, like racism is a sin, and to the extent that uh, Machen may have embodied any of that in his heart, then you know we should call it what it is with him as we would with anyone else. Um, that being said, I, I am not of the mindset of cancel culture, which actually baffles me, particularly for Christians. I, 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 I get the folly of the world that embraces cancel culture. <clears throat> Um, but when Christians embrace cancel culture and, and people say they, you know, they, they can't read Machen or Jonathan Edwards, uh, you know, or, you know, certain Southern Presbyterian authors and find anything profitable in them because of what they say on page 262 or, you know, whatever it is, I, I'm not trying to pretend that page 262 isn't there, so to speak, in Machen or other authors that we could name. Uh, but the reality is, uh, Machen was a sinner, and Machen was a man of his time. And when you bind the two together, um, you know things are going to come out in ways that uh, are are embarrassing. But I, I think one of the great exercises that we can engage as Christians is to, you know, call what is good good, and call what is wrong wrong. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very instructive. You know, I, I hope my kids will learn from my mistakes and not repeat them. And I'm quite confident that's exactly uh, how Machen would feel if he could speak to the issue today. So, you know, what would Machen say about Machen? What would Machen now in heaven, who knows better, say about Machen? Well, I think he would say, uh, where I rightly handled the word of God and practiced and taught it, church stand faithful. And where I mishandled it or misapplied it, uh, don't do what I did. Do what scripture says. Um, you know, in Machen's day, I mean, you're talking about the 1920s, this letter referenced even earlier in 1913. I mean, there were all kinds of, line of di- lines of division. You know, back then, if you were in New York, Italians and Jews would not be cohabitating, um, you know, in the same uh, uh, places to live. You know, there were all kinds of lines in divi- of division, not just white and black. Even amongst whites, you would have... Uh, segregation of different times. You have not had women serving in the military. So in that time, there were all kinds of lines of distinction. And Machen was a son of the South, uh, an affluent, wealthy son of the South who in many ways would have embodied uh, those, um, you know, at least parts of those ways of thinking. And, you know, this is this has been a tough one for me because early on, even even before George Floyd and uh, things that have highly sensitized this discussion, as a mixed-race guy with a mixed-race family who grew up in the South and pastored in the South for a long time, a lot of my 
uh, favorite theologians, if I can call them that, have black eyes on the subject, have tarnished reputations on the subject. And so the options are, okay, I can completely write them off and to use the popular term now, cancel them, um, or I can recognize that they're flawed men. But if you if you eliminated all of the theologians, pastors, Christian authors of the past that are flawed on one page or another, I don't think we would have any left, <laughs> right? Because the only unflawed author is God himself and his word, and the only unflawed man uh, would be Jesus. So at the end of the day, if we're going to benefit at all from Christian history and Christian authors, we, we have to learn how to read uh, with a charitable and critical eye to the things that we read. That's exactly how I hope people will listen to me and read things that I have written. And so, yes, this is sad, but it doesn't make me want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It makes me say Machen was a sinful man, a man of his time, uh, but a man who's also saved by the grace of God. And uh, I'm thankful that I'm saved by the same grace too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's really helpful. Every single time I think about this issue, I mean, you have two options, right? You either cancel him or you read him within his context and understand him correctly. It makes me think of 2 Corinthians, the theme of power through weakness, and how that weakness manifests itself simply to highlight where the power comes from. So if anything Machen has said that is helpful to the church or to Christians, we recognize we don't trust in that man. We look to the God-man that he was pointing to in all of his writings and his preaching and his sermons and his teaching. And I think it's that sort of emphasis that, like you said, what would Machen say about Machen? He would say, look to Christ. That's yeah. essentially what he's saying in this chapter too. Amen. So you've lectured on diversity in the church and on critical race theory around the country. This has been a heated topic for several years, as you know, and you've received plenty of criticism from probably both sides. How do you see these topics affecting the church today? And how can the church be preparing for a better future? One of the ways I find Machen's book, again, not only helpful, but prescient in the sense of anticipating the issues of our day is to the extent that Machen saw certain issues coming down the pike at the church, he addressed them biblically, he addressed them confessionally, and he addressed them charitably without ever wavering on truth. And I, I think that one of the one of the real issues of the day before the church as it relates to things like social justice and critical race theory that in some ways overlaps with Machen's days and concern, but is also different, uh, <clears throat> is, is going to be the sufficiency of Scripture. So let me unpack that. In, in Machen's day, perhaps you could argue that one of the issues was the inspiration, inerrancy, the authority of Scripture. And and I certainly understand that that was, you know, with all the stuff from higher criticism coming from Germany, influencing Princeton and the Presbyterian Church of the day, you know, those are the big categories that the fundamentals, fundamentalists and uh, people like Machen were rightly, you know, standing against. That was the tide they had to oppose. In our day, those issues still matter, the inspiration, the inerrancy, ultimately the authority of Scripture. But I, I think that, that, at, that perhaps 
the bigger issue is actually the sufficiency of Scripture. Do we believe the Bible is sufficient to address the issues of the day, or or should we allow, for instance, sociology to take its place? So the, the, the Christian relationship with things like critical race theory really concerns me. Uh, it, it really concerns me. And the point of compromise, I think, is not necessarily over the authority of Scripture, but the sufficiency. Like, is the Bible sufficient to address the categories of oppression? Is the Bible sufficient to address uh, the, the category of justice? Is the Bible sufficient to address categories of reconciliation, forgiveness, restoration, um, <clears throat> you know, is, is the Bible sufficient? Because right now, uh, what I'm hearing is an awful lot of sociology and not very much biblical theology. And as the church tries to engage something so sensitive, so charged, so important as social justice, uh, we need to believe again that the Bible is sufficient to carry the weight of the day, that the Bible alone is sufficient to carry the conscience of the Christian. Uh, God is not surprised by social justice. I, I read the Proverbs of the day every day. This was a habit I was taught by a man that discipled me when I was a very young Christian. And if you read the book of Proverbs, just thinking about God's sensitivity to justice and oppression, it's all over the book of Proverbs. Uh, these things are all over the Bible. But unfortunately, the Bible is not all over the church right now as it discusses social justice and it's leaning into things like critical race theory, uh, in my mind, too much, and it's creating categorical confusion. Hmm. So what would you say to someone who would respond by saying something like, well, uh, dealing with social justice in our day and age can't be handled by the scriptures alone. We do need sociology. We do need critical race theory. It's much like mathematics. You know, the Bible doesn't teach us what to think about mathematics. We need something outside the Bible, but it aligns with Scripture. It seems like some Christians today don't want to affirm a total antithesis between what the Scriptures say about social justice and what the world says about it. They want to almost deal with that issue, critical race theory, on the same level or with the same evidence. How would you... How would you encourage someone to think more biblically about that and not try to draw from that stream of thinking in order to affirm a Christian perspective on social justice? Yeah, it's tricky. On the one hand, we can learn from non-Christians, you know, use the category of science or, or math as, as analogs. And I would say, of course, that God in his kindness has granted common grace wisdom so that there are a lot of things that we can learn about the world um, in in those spheres or, or orbits. Uh, the Bible is uh, sufficient in all things. It doesn't tell us what time to put our kids to bed, right? I've, I've got four kids. I wrestle that question every day, especially when they wrestle against me when I say it's time to go to bed. So obviously there are things that the Bible does not explicitly address and that we can you know, discern and learn uh, even um, from outside of Scripture and from voices outside of Scripture. But, but, that, but that's making it too easy, I think, <clears throat> especially when something like critical race theory uh, is, is sort of the, the, you know, the brainchild. It descends down the trail from critical theory, which uh, was unambiguously 
unambiguously anti-Christianity, as is uh, the underpinning of CRT. So when you walk back the trail from uh, critical theory to critical race theory, if you look at the influence of, for instance, uh, French postmodern authors like Derrida and Foucault into uh, what becomes the, the the foundational structures of critical race theory? Uh, th- these th- this isn't science and math. These are things that are just unambiguously opposed to Christianity, and the proof is in the pudding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know it, the presence of things like Marxism and, and you know critical theory itself. Uh, on the one hand, uh, had an enchantment and derivation from Marxism. It's not nearly and reductionistically Marxist, and I wouldn't say the same thing of of CRT. And yet, there's quite a lot of Marxism in that soup. So when you when you throw in the you know the atheism, the postmodernism, uh, the the Marxism of CRT. When you look at those things, I mean that's that's the soup. So th- this isn't narrowly speaking astronomy or math. This is stuff that has a, a worldview. It derives from a worldview that is opposed to Christianity. So at a minimum, at a minimum, in my view, if we're going to talk about you know, the, the legal system or the educational system or the health system and, you know, look at things like CRT as they engage those at a minimum, at a very minimum, I think Christians should be mindful about the just the temptation to replace biblical categories uh, with secular ones. So, for instance, um, in, in the orbit of social justice, it catches my attention how many of the same words that Christians use are being used in CRT, social justice discussions, but they have very different meanings. Mm. And that's why I think is so dangerous, if not diabolical, mm-hmm. uh, that we're taking biblical terms and categories and recasting them with different meanings. And it's, it's having a negative effect, a catechetical effect, especially on younger minds that <clears throat> that are attracted to the activism and the concerns of these movements. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, to walk the circle back, uh, the Word of God says a lot to these categories, and it says it better. You know, what, if history has proven anything, the world has never been able to fix the world's problems. Uh, the French Revolution did not fix the world's problems. It made things worse. Nazism thought it had a utopia that could offer the world, and it proved the very opposite, Marxism. You know, all these attempts to get several steps away from the Word of God and somehow be helpful to those that bear the image of God uh, to man, they've never worked. And I, in, in my view, and I know many will disagree with me, I think CRT stands in a similar trajectory of trying to offer a, a sociological analysis as well as way forward to the world's problems. And, you know, even the Marxist oppressor-oppressed structure actually teaches one painfully obvious lesson that someone will always rise up mm-hmm. yep. <laughs> to want to be at the top yeah. and prove to be the next oppressor, which is why we need a good and gentle king as we have in Jesus. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. The hope that it offers is ultimately only found in the Christian faith and through trust in the true king. I think that's a, that's an important point to be made in this whole discussion. You know, and it's interesting, too, because I think a lot of people don't find the Bible to be sufficient because they want to they want to sound intelligent to their friends who are sold out on some of these theories that you had mentioned. 
And it could be, maybe not always, but it could be the fact that people don't want to suffer intellectually. They don't want to look dumb. They don't want to look like a Bible-thumping uh, biblicist. As you're just saying, this is what Scripture says about these issues, and I'm going to believe it. How would you encourage some of those who perhaps feel um, persuaded not to suffer in that way? Part, part of my analysis of this, which again is very limited and could surely be wrong at many points, but I, I think part of why this has become so tempting <clears throat> to young minds, you know, millennials, uh, people of varying age groups, is because uh, it, it's actually because in some ways while the scripture may, well, I shouldn't say may, while the scripture is sufficient to speak to these issues, I think there are a lot of people that felt like their churches have not sufficiently addressed these issues. So the Bible says a lot about caring for orphans and widows and showing mercy, recognizing the category of oppression. And I think many people have wondered if the church has been too passive, if the giant has been asleep. And so if on the one hand they're reading their Bibles and they, they see these things categorically, but they're looking at church and is kind of feeling like there's not much going on here that embodies these categories. That's part of what makes CRT and the other things, the social justice, the BLM activism also attractive is that uh, people are looking uh, for things to be done. You know, Micah 6 to 8, uh, you know, the Lord requires of us not simply to believe, but to do justice, mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. So, you know, if I'm hard on CRT, which I am and I'm going to continue to be, uh, I also want to point out, like, there are ways in which, well, let me say it like this, that it, it's likely that in this orbit that we're discussing right now, it's not so much the sins of commission that should worry us, but the sins of omission. It's not so much what we have done, but maybe things left undone. And by that, I mean embodying uh, the love, the heart, the mercy, the justice, the sensitivity towards oppression that the Bible talks about. Uh, categorically, I think we would say the right things, but when it comes to doing, I, I think we should be willing to say we've not done enough and that, you know, uh, <clears throat> true religion, as James put it, it, is not simply affirming proper categories, important as it is, but it's it's showing, it's demonstrating the love of God, the heart of God, uh, including the love and heart of God for those who are oppressed. And Machen gets after this in his book, even in his chapter on the church. This is one of the reasons why I say it's such an interesting read in the current context, because I think Machen in some people's eyes could almost be seen as a little bit too activist, you know, a little bit too social justice in the sense of wanting to see mercy ministry extended. But for Machen, it wasn't a social thing. It was a gospel thing because justice flows from the heart of God, uh, who is the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Christ. And Machen wanted to see the hands and heart of the church embodied in such local ways and such demonstrable ways that it would become not only a way of silencing the accuser of the church, but also a way of winning people into the church. And I, I think that would prove to be a very helpful course correction for a lot of our churches, uh, for a lot of our hearts, including my own. Mm -hmm. That's really helpful. That is one thing that he does emphasize. He emphasizes Christian education toward the end of his book. Um, when you think about Christian education and how the church can be defensive and offensive in this whole issue, what, what would be 
how would you encourage even pastors listening uh, to to engage their people, to educate their people about this issue, and to face those criticisms from the world? Here again, Machen, it's like he was writing this book 30 seconds ago. One of the things that he talks about in, in this chapter is his concern that parental responsibility for the education of their children would be supplanted by governmental responsibility. And, you know, to say it sort of briefly, Matron was afraid that the, you know, the government was going to try to take over the parents' job of raising our kids, which was Marxism. <clears throat> Marxism thought the problem with the world was the nuclear family, i.e. biblical family, mm -hmm. and the way forward would be for the government to take over and start raising our kids. So Machen's writing this in 1923. Just think of um, you know, the way uh, Christian parents may feel about this today. So, you know, I'm, I'm not an advocate of one particular model. We've done homeschooling right now. Uh, we're doing uh, Christian schooling. I, I think the thing, I'm not even trying to be explicitly, um, you know, critical of, of those who for some reason of choice um, are doing uh, public schooling. My point is parental responsibility mm -hmm. and parental involvement. Uh, today, the statistics are staggering. If you ask the question, who has the most access to our kids, e even in terms of listening time in a day, if you added up parents, pastors, and Sunday school teachers together, it still wouldn't equal what they're hearing in social media, mm. which is dizzying to me. Mm. So who is carrying the conscience of our young people? Who is educating and catechizing uh, our children? Um, you know, this is, I think this is situation critical. This is the bright red button flashing over there saying something is is really wrong. And, you know, so Machen, who interestingly was unmarried, had no children, and yet is pleading for thoughtful reflection on the importance of Christian education. Uh, I think that that is something that we should give a lot of thought to today. It, there are concerning trends to me right now that not only have secular colleges been taken over by CRT and social justice, Christian colleges are wavering left and right on the subject today. And unfortunately, there's not a lot of great curriculum, kind of like the stuff that has been written to prepare high school kids to go off to college and anticipating higher critical exegesis and the different social dynamics and temptations. I, you know, one could argue that we need a similar curriculum for our covenant kids to help prepare them. Uh, for the things that they're going to get when they come not only out of high school, uh, but even now as they're trying to figure out like who they are in this world, who is the church in the world. Uh, one of the diabolical things that Satan can do is cause our covenant kids to look at the blessings that God has given them, the privilege, and I use that word intentionally, of being raised in a Christian home of having Christian families, of belonging to churches that love them and care for them. Uh, one of the diabolical things that Satan could attempt to do is to persuade our covenant kids that the blessings of God are actually curses, mm. things for which they should feel guilty, mm -hmm. apologize for, re repent of, right? Uh, so thinking about how we're educating our kids at various levels, I, I think is a very sobering. I have kids from 16 right now, almost 17, down to four years old. And uh, the stuff that is in cartoons for kids right now in children's literature, it's staggering. It's really humbling. So I'm not, you know, I'm not saying we run for the hills or 
anything like that. I just think we need good, reformed, biblical interaction and materials to help our kids figure out how they're going to navigate their way through these sharky waters. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Eric. It's been a joy to think through some of these really important issues, pressing issues in our day-to-day, and to be galvanized yet again to be an earnest contender for the truth with love in our hearts for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his church, uh, but also with boldness and courage. So I'm thankful for men like you who are able to uh, not even not just be in a church proclaiming these truths, but uh, as a leader in, in a specific Presbyterian denomination that I'm a part of. So I'm really thankful for this time that I've had with you. It's been a gift. Thank you. Thank you, David. Privilege to be on your show. And may the Lord uh, bless and encourage you, your family, and your labors. Thanks, brother. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Eric Watkins. Join me next time for my conversation with scholar and author Greg Beal as we discuss Machen's chapter on the Bible. This episode of Christianity and Liberalism was brought to you by Westminster Seminary Press. Westminster Seminary Press has published a brand new edition of the book this show is based on, Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gresham Machen. This 100th anniversary edition features a new forward by Kevin DeYoung and is available to order now at wtsbooks.com. Listeners to this podcast can get a free download of the Christianity and Liberalism audiobook at checkout when you enter the promo code MACHEN23. That's M-A-C-H-E-N 23. This podcast was based on the book Christianity and Liberalism by J. Gressa Machen and hosted by David Brionis. This episode was produced by Josh Curry and Jimmy Atkins. Audio captured by Paul Quorum, edited and engineered by Will Bowblitz. Our theme song was written by Timothy Brindle and produced by Nobody Special. Thanks for listening. To demonstrate the two completely different religions Liberalism denies man's wicked condition And divine inspiration with which scripture was written Us Christians are convinced scripture's truly factual But liberalism denies the supernatural Machen's book definitely showed Christianity and liberalism are diametrically opposed It's not a different version of Christianity It has opposite views of God and humanity Often disguised with Christian terminology They baptize the serpent's absurd philosophy. Call you a liberal, it's not just political But rejecting his virgin birth and all of his miracles From trusting in science But against God it's disgusting defiance Self is your trust and reliance The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis The lamb's dripping wrists Is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell Machen press men to be honest Don't call it Christian if it essentially is godless Christianity's based on events God accomplished Christ was sent to bring redemption he promised Not just an ethical leader, respectable teacher But God in the flesh, yes our blessed redeemer An affront to human pride You can only be saved by faith in Christ who was crucified Our greatest needs to be redeemed by the Son It's not what would Jesus do but 
what Jesus has done Since we're slaves to doubt, pride, and lust We're in desperate need of rescue that's outside of us An understatement to say that we're flawed In need of what Machen called a creative act of God Cause we're torn by sin, we've been abhorring him Not just sick but dead, we must be born again God's enemies, his arrogant opponents Who can only be saved by vicarious atonement Judgment fell on Christ in my place Unrighteous, guilty sinners are only righteous by grace Scriptures, historical acts, they are certain Jesus the God-man, the supernatural person We need new hearts, he's the compassionate surgeon By his death and resurrection, he's smashing the serpent The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis, the lamb's dripping wrists Is still the only answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell My intention is to show and I'll mention in this flow Machen's words are as useful as a century ago uh-huh. Liberalism breeds destruction, it's hopeless Today it's deconstruction and wokeness Rooted in paganism, atheism Like Satan's mission to make CRT state religion These abominations we see to this day In denominations like the PC USA Why embrace Machen's great wisdom? In light of the claims of his racism In 1913, Machen wrote Mom complaining Angry about Princeton's campus integration I can't believe the decision of Warfield But this cancer of heart, I'm sure the Lord healed See, Warfield became Machen's mentor An instrument for Machen to repent more Showing his need of the Savior to change him But consider the Lord's grace of sanctification Machen became friends with an African-American Named Charlie Machen, gladly had cherished him As a matter of fact, Charlie had a cataract Skin color didn't matter as Machen had his back Paid for the operation, stayed with him in the hospital Christ changing Machen, not an impossible obstacle From his love for his friend Charlie It's quite clear Christ was changing Machen partly Any bigotry left, it's not there any longer Perfected now in the presence of his father The line is drawn in the sand, Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand We bring the antithesis, the lamb's dripping wrists Is still the only the answer for man's wickedness The line is drawn in the sand Christ is God and he's man Upon the rock of the word of God we will stand CNL with Machen we will tell Faith in Christ still the only way to be redeemed from hell